Hi, friends. This is episode 39 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Thanks so much, everybody, for coming on back for another episode as we journey through the book of Judges. What an exciting book. What a challenging book. I have to tell you, this has been by far out of two years, 105 sessions now of doing the Bible Lab. This has become probably the most challenging for me personally to try to see how God's character shines through in these very brutal stories. But today I am going to tell you it is a great story that really shows the character of God and truly shows us what should we focus on when we're scared, when we need courage, when we want to share our faith, or we truly want to be warriors for God, what do we need to do? And in today's session, I think you're going to find a great answer. So it is my hope that sometime during this session that the Lord speaks directly to you and gives you some of those answers you've been looking for. Now, I just want to quickly remind you to head on over to thebiblelab.com and make sure that you either print out the study guide or view it on a screen because there are a lot of things that we want to make sure that you don't miss and we want to make sure that you follow along exactly where we are in the discussion. I'm excited to be on this journey with you and my prayers are with you as we both enter into this conversation. God bless you and welcome to the Bible Lab. You guys ready? Here we go. Number one, I am more courageous than most of my friends. I am more courageous than most of my friends. Wow, let's look here. It looks, <laughs> wow, it, it is truly 50-50 here. Um, and I'm saying, okay, so I saw an even split of yes and no's, but I saw about 15% maybes here. All right, let's not test it out. Number two, being home alone in the dark makes me feel a bit nervous. All right, that was a tough one. It took the men a little bit longer to raise the no card. But I'm seeing predominantly about 75% no, about 20% yes, and 5% maybe. All right, so most of you, you're all right with uh, being home alone in the dark. You're not that nervous. That's good. You're courageous people. I want you to remember that because we're going to talk about courage today. And I want you to remember you voted that you are courageous people for the most part. Number three, the best way to deal with bullies is to give them a taste of their own medicine. All right, let's look here. Oh, we're pretty split. It looks like the no's might have edged out the yeses by maybe 5%. Because so, it looked like, yeah, it looked like maybe 50% no to 45% yes to 5% maybes. And then several people raised up all their cards. Great. Thank you for playing. Yes. Number four, I feel more spiritually confident when I'm surrounded by my church community friends. Ah, yeah. Predominantly, like 90% yes, 5% no, 5% maybe. 
You need some new church friends, maybe, people. But for the most part, we feel more confident when we're surrounded by our church community to be spiritually brave than we are when we're at our secular environment, perhaps your work environment, perhaps uh, you know, some, of the, some of your families are not in any way very spiritual, and you have family get-togethers, and it's, it's hard during those times. And last one, number five, God prefers to work through men, but when he has no other choice, we'll resort to utilizing a woman. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay, so let me just tell the people who are listening to the audio what I am looking at. I'll tell you what I'm looking at. I'm looking at 99% of you who are safe from physical harm. And I'm looking at three of you men who, um, I hope you have some top ramen at home for lunch because otherwise you're going hungry. Oh my word. Yeah, I saw, I saw a couple, a couple of yeses and a, and a couple of maybes. And that just goes to show you're not courageous at all. You're not only afraid of being alone in the dark, you're afraid of being in a room full of women. Yeah. Couldn't say yes or no. All right talking about courage today. We're continuing on our journey through the, the series called The Judge of Judges. And the judge, all capitals, uh, is talking about God. He is ultimately who we're looking at. As we look at the different judges, the 12 judges uh, mentioned in the book, we're, we're just taking a look at the judge, God himself, as he interacts with humanity. And what is God doing and how do we interpret it? How do we misinterpret it? How do we, how do we see him clearly? And ultimately, as we go through this journey today, it brings us to a, a point in the overall story, a story that took 400 to 450 years to tell in the book. And we're looking at a story that asks, do you have courage? And what is it that brings you courage? And so to get us into the story, I want to ask you this question. In your personal religious experience... What causes you to be afraid and literally be insecure about sharing your faith? Does anything bring you courage to address this? How do you feel in your own journey? Raise your question or your comment cards. We're going to get a microphone right to you. So what is it in your own personal experience that causes you to be afraid and literally be insecure about sharing your faith? Right over here. Okay, thank you. Sometimes I'm afraid to share my faith because I feel like the person who I'm with thinks that I'm not compassionate to the struggles that they're going through and that my faith is in a vacuum and it's not based on real world experiences. Yeah, so it's kind of like you're presenting a great fairy tale or a parable, but it doesn't really fit. Exactly. I think a lot of us share that. If I were to do the yes and no cards, I think many of us would raise uh, a yes card on that. And I'm shocked a bunch of love it cards didn't just shoot up. Yes, sir. Facing rejection. Yes. You, know, you, you tell somebody, uh, you, you give your testimony, you say what a great thing God has been doing in your life, and all of a sudden you're a weirdo. Yeah, absolutely. Over here. I feel like I don't have the answers to the questions that they ask, and that I, maybe I'm being pushy, and I'll be, <clears throat> um, they're not ready for it, and so I'm just pushing myself on yeah. it. Yeah. Those are, those are two great big things, aren't they? I think the first thing that you listed is, is probably one of the first things that comes to our mind when we think of witnessing. Someone asks me a question, what if I don't know the right answer? Oh my word, they'll think I'm not a genius. 
that person doesn't know everything. Some of the best conversations I've had with people, and I've been a professional minister for 25 years now. One of the best conversations I've had is with people when they ask me the question, I'm like, boy, I don't know. Let's, let's look at that. Because I've never been asked that question before. That is so cool. Yeah, or, you know, I've been asked that several times recently. Let's look at that. And it's the hardest thing for us to say, I don't know. Especially if instead of being called Mr., you're called Pastor. Right? So that first thing is really, really challenging. And I think the best thing that we can all do is say, it's okay to not know. What's not okay is to not be passionate enough to find out. Okay? Our calling, our Adventist church, is founded upon this phrase that we've used over and over again called progressive revelation, which means that we don't know all truth for all time. We have to continue searching because just like Jesus said to his disciples before he left, I've got so much more to share with you, you just can't handle it right now. Neither could our church founders. And Jesus has something for us today because he has still so much more. And so we get to be part of this journey of discovery. We're not the Knights Templar hanging on and protecting the Holy Grail from the world that might steal it. We're actually explorers going through a rainforest of religious study to say there's still new species to be discovered. There's still new things that we as our group today can say, whoa, how come no one ever found that? Why do you think there's so many people in the Bible Lab today? Because every single Saturday, we're going on a journey exploring, and we're finding new things, aren't we? So it should be very easy for us to say, I don't know, but let's find out. That second part, though, that you said, that's when we think we do know it all. That's when we get pushy, right? We know it all, and if you just agree with me, you would be saved. That's, that's the challenge of Jesus' day. If Jesus just would have listened to the Pharisees, he would have been okay in the minds of the Pharisees. Exactly. All right, uh, Randy. I work in a PC indignant environment where if I raise Christian issues, I would be crushed. Yeah. But oddly enough, if I raised a Muslim or Buddhist issue, it would be no big deal. Yeah, that's one of our challenges today, which really encourages us to seek different ways in expressing our faith other than verbal uh, dialogue. Um, the, the quote that's attributed to Francis of Assisi, which people wonder whether he said it or not, but it's very much attributed to him, is preach constantly, and if necessary, use words. Um, that's where we find ourselves as Christians in a world that's trying to make sure that we're politically correct, but yet we're always, you know when you fold a piece of paper in half and then you let it go and you, and you try to let it lay flat on the table, it doesn't. Sometimes what you have to do is fold the paper back the other way and then it'll lay flat. Uh, in our politically correct world, we're folding the paper back the opposite direction. We're going to the extreme just to try to find some balance, but I don't know if we'll ever find the balance. I don't think the paper will, will ever lay flat on the table again because we're, we're constantly trying to find balance, aren't we? Back here, in the back. I wonder if for most people the real reason that they fear is that the person they're trying to witness to really knows who they are in their everyday life. And they're afraid that they will see them as being hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're not going to speak up. 
Yeah, especially if we're espousing something that we're not applying in our life. Um, because we're afraid the person will say, so how's that working for you? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm working on it, uh, too, and I will start with my New Year's resolution to, uh, you know, that's the problem. I, I have a 10-second spirituality test that I can take the temperature of anybody. It's a 10-second spirituality test that's this. When you talk about your faith, are you excited to share it, or do you want to argue about it? 10-second spirituality test. I can tell you where you are. The reason why we get together here is we're looking for things to get excited about. Because as long as we have good news, we don't have time for the bad news, do we? I don't have time for the bad news. I only have time for the good news. Why? Because I'll never run out of good news. Why? Because we're always studying, and we're continually finding new things to get excited about to share with people. What we share with people is not, like I said earlier, we don't read the Bible to see what does it say that man has to do to be saved. We read the Bible to see what does the Bible say about a God who saves. And that's all we care about. Because the more we behold the character of God, the more we are changed. It's natural. It's a natural phenomenon that happens. The more you behold God, the more you change. That's why Jesus said it. Exactly. Uh, right back here. Um, my faith is so close to my heart that when I talk about my faith to someone, and it usually is someone in my family, um, I feel the pain of trying to you know, say what I know, and it's kind of like that fairy tale. They, it's their unbelief is just like seriously. You really, that's what you believe. Yeah. And so my faith is so close to my heart that I get hurt, and I, yeah. and I don't know if it's that fear. You know, just because I hold it up so highly that when someone trashes it, it's really hard. Yeah, I think the thing we have to keep in mind is people's view of God has ninety nine percent to do with people's view of individuals who have set themselves up as God's representatives. And many of them were their parents. And as much as we try to be good examples, whatever, uh, some parents in their best efforts repeated what they heard. Uh, I believe that uh, the great-grandparent generation read all of the books. And they decided, you know, based on these books, there's some principles, let's make some rules. And they made the rules. And the grandparents and the parent generation got the rules, but they didn't read as much. And so as they were doing the rules and passing on the rules, uh, in time, rules are not timeless. Principles are timeless. And the rules over time need to be changed based on the principle. How does it fit today? And because people stopped reading and asking the question, why do we have these rules? What's the principle it's based upon? It gave an entire generation the absolute right to say, these rules don't make sense. Your religion doesn't make sense. I'm out. There's too many holes in your bucket. And because of that, it's created not only apathy, but antipathy. People that are very much allergic to you trying to explain to them a different way, because they already experienced one way. And so it's even more difficult to try to introduce them to the concept of a relationship with God when all they saw before was it made their life worse because of the added stress, the hypocrisy, uh, the parents fighting, fighting, fighting in the car on the way to the church. But the moment those tires touched the parking lot of the church, with Jesus in the family, happy, happy home. <laughs> Happy, happy home. They saw the hypocrisy, and the moment you left the church, it was back to normal. It did not affect their home. Jesus was in their family, but it did not make a happy, happy home. Bro. 
I frequently speak to audiences that consist of uh, college students and professors yeah. on, on, on faith and science and, and belief in God and so on. And uh, one thing that I commonly find, even myself I'm finding out, is that uh, it's increasingly difficult to speak about our, our faith and share it or just um, share an opinion about the, um, a topic that might touch religion because of the accusation of intolerance. And the, the accusers that accuse us of intolerance because we just share what we believe and share our religion and our, our beliefs in the Bible actually fall in the same fault of accusing us of intolerance. They become intolerant. But our young people especially are susceptible to that. They fear sharing, even saying what they believe because automatically they'll be tainted with the, the, the accusation of being intolerant. Yeah. Why do you think Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, that there is a distinguishing characteristic, and he didn't follow that up by giving them a list of doctrine? He listed an action. The world will know you're truly my disciples if you love one another. You look at the historic characters within our written history. You look at Mother Teresa. Why do people want to know what she believes about God? Is it because she's written a great book expressing doctrine in detail? <laughs> Going outside of Christianity, why are people curious about what Gandhi thinks, what his religious structure is? Why do they want to know? His actions. Exactly. I could go down through a, a long list. We try to be right when God only called us to be loving. And because of that, we lose out on relationships and we hang on to religion. And in hanging on to religion, we lose relationships. True religion, as defined by Christ, is loving people. That's why we as a church have a discipleship model called the 12 people you love. Not the 12 people that you sell Christianity to, not the 12 people that you try to convince that you're right and they're wrong, not 12 people that you try to save them because their belief system is different than yours. It's 12 people you love because, quite frankly, you have no influence if you have no relationship. And we break so many relationships just because we have to be right and I can't cave. And if I cave, I lose. And so we choose to hang on to religion and, and lose relationships relationships. I see a couple of cards up. Can I come to you just at, at the end? Because we're continuing this same vein, but I want us to give us, uh, I want to give us a filter of scripture to make sure that we're running this through the filter of scripture as we continue talking about our understanding of this. For those of you who um, have your favorite version of your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Judges chapter 4. On the screen here, I have the New Living Translation. You can follow along on the screen or on your mobile device of your choice. Judges chapter 4, starting with verse 1, we're going to go through the whole thing as quickly as possible. It picks us up from the last story. It says, after Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. 
Sisera, who had 900 chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Lapidus, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Verse 8, Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. Can I hear an amen? So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. At Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. Verse 11, Now Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, there's a good name for your kids if you're looking for one, (laughs) Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Za'ananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Harisheth Haggim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. Verse 17, meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if there's anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. You might want to plug yours. (laughs) Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, so he died. Verse 22, when Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come, and I'll show you the man you're looking for. (laughs) 
So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. Who says the Bible's boring? Incredible story. We're going to talk about the cast of characters here real quick, and then we're going to get to some of your questions and comments. You've got several characters here. You have this, you have this warrior named Sisera. Something you need to understand is he's not actually from the people that King Jabin rules over. He's a mercenary. He's a mercenary that they've hired. This guy is bad news. Everyone knows about him. In fact, the Jews have these legends about him. They're so afraid of this incredible mercenary. The Jewish legend describes him as follows, and I have on your study guide here. This is a quote. At age 30, he had conquered the whole world. At the sound of his voice, the strongest of walls fell in a heap, and the wild animals in the woods were chained to the spot by fear. The proportions of his body were vast beyond description. If he took a bath in the river and dived beneath the surface, enough fish were caught in in his beard to feed a multitude, and it required no less than 900 horses to draw the chariot in which he rode. That's quoting Ginsburg, page 35. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe a little exaggeration here, <laughs> possibly. This is another David and Goliath story before the David and Goliath story. Um, just the sound of his name struck fear in the hearts of all Jewish people. And because of that, they were frozen in fear. He was the biggest schoolyard bully. For 20 years, he and his army and all of the kingdom of Jabin harassed the Israelites. It was a known custom during this time, and we're going to see in the next story with Gideon, a, a known custom for your tribe to go into a weaker tribe's area right at harvest time and to steal all of the harvest. They did all the work, all the cultivating, and you come in and do it. In fact, there are actually legends uh, of David himself waking up in the, in the middle of the night at midnight. The wind had blown across the harp and strummed his harp, and he, and he woke up, and he, and he writes this song, and, and uh, he gets real excited. He tells his men, now let's go, and he instructs them to go to another tribe's area and to plunder all of their goods, and that was seen as a very heroic thing to do. It's just the mindset. Remember, it's a barbaric time. Don't equate their society then with our society now. It's a barbaric time where it's take or be taken from. The strongest survive. And in this context, the Israelites are not the strongest. For 20 years, they're taken advantage of. And Sisera is the name that strikes fear into everyone. Then as we're reading along, we come uh, across this judge's name, Deborah. Deborah, whose name literally means honeybee. <laughs> honeybee. This name has occurred once before in the Bible. 
we've just kind of read over it, just skipped over it, because uh, if you go all the, all the way back to uh, Rachel, uh, the story of Rachel, she had a nurse named Deborah, and this nurse must have been incredible. Now, of course, <laughs> the, the nurses of Rachel and Leah had to be incredible to keep up with all the deliveries of the children that they were trying to keep up with and the, the maidservants and all this. But this nurse, Deborah, was so beloved that when they buried her under a tree, they named the tree, the tree of Deborah. And in fact, that tree not only was called the tree of Deborah, it was called the tree of weeping, which means her funeral, there was not a dry eye. They were wondering, how do we get along without this nurse Deborah? So this woman, years later, is named after Deborah, someone who is held in just the highest emotional esteem. But she has her own tree, the palm of Deborah. It's a different type of tree, but she's so well-known, she has her own tree, the palm of Deborah. And she would sit there and she would hear the cases of the people. Now, this is not what you would probably think. It wasn't people coming and saying, hey, he cheated me and we need you to settle the dispute. This was something much, much different. We're going to get to that in a moment. She would hear other cases for a very different reason. And where she's located, we'll tell you a lot about that in a moment. She's seen as a prophet She's not the first prophetess we see in Scripture. There's several throughout all of Scripture, but before her, uh, we see Miriam. Whenever you read about Moses and Aaron, the name Miriam is there. She's one of the leaders of the Israelites. And here we come to another strong woman who's a leader of the people. They come to her as a prophet because she's proven herself. You don't call someone a prophet without running through the test of a prophet. In Deuteronomy, they were very clear. There's four tests of a prophet. And she went through. You can prove she's getting words from God. Trust what she says when it comes to decisions of God and what God wants us to do. Go to Deborah. She's our prophet. It's interesting. It says she's located between Bethel and Ramah. Uh, those areas mean that... Uh, the first town you get to, I believe, is Bethel, is about five miles north of Jerusalem, where the temple is. To get to Ramah, uh, you have to go about another six miles, which means she's about eight miles north of the temple. And yet, the people are coming to Deborah. They're not coming to the temple to hear a word from the Lord. You see the problem? The people have lost confidence in the temple. You're really going to see this here coming up, especially uh, when Samuel comes along and tries to tell Eli, the priest, hey, your kids are acting up in church. Uh, I know we don't have a mother's room in the temple, but um, <laughs> there's a problem here. The people have lost all confidence in the church, and they're coming to Deborah to get a word from the Lord. That's what she's known for. So what do the people bring to her? It's not petty disputes. They come to her and say, what do you think God wants us to do about this? about our current political situation. She's known as a judge, a sopeta, and by stationing herself near Bethel, like I said, she represents an alternative to this priesthood that's lost its effectiveness. Then we get this other guy, Barak. She calls for him. Now, he's not close by her. Uh, his tribe is, is quite a distance. And so anywhere between 11 miles and 50 miles away, she sends for him, and she has so much influence, and her reputation is, is so great that he'll 
go that distance to come hear what she has to say. What do we know about him? Well, his name means lightning. Perhaps that's where Muhammad Ali got uh, the whole lightning and sting like a bee thing. You got Deborah and Barack here, honeybee and lightning. His name means lightning, and this is going to mean quite a bit more as we get into the rest of the story about how God actually brings confusion into uh, Sisera's army. Verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. There's an expression here, this Hebrew expression. Wayosipu la'asot literally means, and they added to do, which in context means, and they relapsed into a pattern of behavior. Fortunately, fortunately today, we have enough theological and spiritual information that we never relapse, do we? We just continue growing, and our church is getting better. We never go back. In fact, we don't look back to say, how did they do it? And we should do it that way. We're always going forward, right? Lord, help us. They've got back into this pattern of behavior. What's the pattern been so far? What have they done? They worship idols. The other gods, the lowercase g gods, are seen as the gods of the everyday, the gods of the harvest, the gods that make the rain come, make the grass grow, make your, your um, herds, your, your flocks, make them multiply faster. They're the gods of wealth. Yahweh is seen as the God of crisis. You only go to him at times of crisis. That's why the Bible reads not only that they relapsed into this pattern of behavior, but we read once again, why do you wait 20 years to ask God to help you? It's because God was still seen in their minds, the same behavior. God, Yahweh, is only seen as the God that gets you out of Egypt, the God that actually helps you get out of these crises in life. He's not the God who cares about everyday life. Why do you think Jesus had to express that God even sees the sparrow fall? Because even in Christ's day, they didn't get it. God is a God of everyday crisis, not just the major crisis. Chapter 4, verse 6 to 8, says, Deborah calls for Barak with a message from God to gather 10,000 warriors. God was going to relieve them of 20 years of oppressive um, persecution. Barak says he'll only go to war if Deborah comes with him. What have you been told that that's expressing? Now, there's been a couple of cards up, and I want to honor that. And so if you want to go back, we're It's an open conversation. So if you want to deal with some stuff we've done before, feel free to do that. But if you'd like to deal with this as well, why do you think Barack is saying, I'll only go if you go with me, Deborah? We're going to talk about that as well. We're going to start right here. Yes, Mike. Well, I'll go back. When I was 22 years of age, I was attending a Jesuit university, Mm -hmm. and I was very certain in my faith. Uh, I was blessed because I belonged to the one true church. <laughs> I'm not so certain today, and my my faith is constantly evolving. Yeah. My views are always changing. Right. Uh, the fundamentals don't change. Jesus Christ is the Savior of everyone. Yeah. But the idea that I have changed in my viewpoint is expressed by the fact that I'm sitting next to this lady who <laughs> I have 
She proves you wrong every day, doesn't she? Well, <laughs> she's the reason more than anyone else is why I'm here this morning. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how life is. Yeah. And I think God is constantly asking us, yeah, take a look at this over here. Maybe you're, you're not quite right in your certainty here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Over here. Just when you mentioned earlier, I, I remember reading through the book of Judges, and it caught me that it seemed like constantly it was, and the people cried unto the Lord to help them. Like this thing of waiting, waiting, waiting. And I think about on our daily life, we have a tendency sometimes to do that with God. We don't necessarily see the, him interested in those little things that we walk through daily. But then when it's a crisis, then God, help me out of this. Absolutely. I think that's really major. So you're saying we still relapse into that typical pattern of behavior that we try to figure it out, try to figure it out, we try to do it, and God wants me to prove to him that I can do it. And then when we prove to ourselves and God that we can't do it, then we cry out to God, can you do it? Um, it's, it's easy for us to look back in a condescensional way at what they did unless we stop and see, but how do we typically do it today? Thank you. Back here. We've been struggling with the story, the tent stake through his temple. Last week it was the knife through the belly fat closing around <laughs> and thrusting out the outside. Yeah, thanks for reminding us. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's kind of funny. I had a conversation with someone last week because you know, they were groaning about it. Well, if we're studying the character of God, why didn't he in 2020 vision do it a different way? Mm -hmm. And so I compared it. I saw in the news culturally today that they had released this young woman that killed a man that took her at 16, or they're going to release her, and held her as a sex slave. And instead of fleeing, she killed him. Mm -hmm. And I said, is it not the same that, you know, she was praying for deliverance and now some people in hindsight say, well, if she was praying to God, why didn't he just help her to escape? Mm -hmm. And yet if she had killed him, a person brought up uh, during his attack, she would have been exonerated immediately. Yeah. And in that situation, having dealt with abused victims, you know, when they're praying and they don't see a way out, if that is the deliverance to end this suffering, then I don't see it as culturally different from this time in the Bible. What we struggle with is we've sanitized it. Like when Mel Gibson did The Passion of the Christ, we've always had this beautiful crucifixion scene of Jesus on the uh, cross, and then it became reality. Yeah. It's gritty and it's ugly, and sometimes that's deliverance because God knows this is the end, and that's the only way it can be seen. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Thad. You, you bring up such a relevant point. Because these stories are happening so far, I mean, this story itself happens 200 years after the Exodus. Because these stories are happening so far after the stories of go in and, you know, take over the land, and because it's separated, just like the, the story that you shared, because it's separated by time, we view these differently than the stories that preceded them. And we see these as more barbaric, and it could be because something within us, and this is something that troubles me as well, something within us sees that had they done it while they're like 
this young lady, while she's in the midst of being attacked, then in our minds we say, oh yeah, that's, that's absolutely, you know, that's absolutely okay. That's self-defense. Whereas later on, even the courts were saying, you know, we're going to try her for murder. And because of that, it, it, internally, I don't know why, but internally, we look at these things that have stretched out for so long, we look at them differently if it had happened right away, right in the midst of it. Harvey. Sisera was a terror. Yes, he was. Barack was a nobody. Yes. And Barack is to go and attack Sisera. Mm -hmm. And that's absurd. Yes. Deborah is the voice of God. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Yes, it is. So Barack says, Deborah, I want the voice of God with me. I don't have it. Yes. So you come with me. So he needed God with him, so he wanted Deborah. Absolutely. <laughs> it sounded like a female voice over here said a woman. Uh, Because of today, and, and, and because of our internal struggles, and, and we, we need to acknowledge, there's internal struggles of how people see women in leadership and whether God can use them as the highest authority or not. It's a, it's a current discussion. And I don't want to downplay it, and I don't want to feed it. Um, but I, I hear emotion from there. And I think even our current emotion about our current struggles within our movement, we're missing a point that you just made so clearly. Dr. Elder, which is, why would Barack say, I'm not going into battle without you? Very, very difficult for a man to say, I'm not going to go do the most manly thing, which is go to battle with a sword and a shield if I can't take a woman along with me. And it's not downplaying women, it's understanding the culture of his day. We're going to talk about the role of women in a, in, in a couple of different ways, um, but what needs to be focused on is what was Barack truly demanding? God's presence. You are absolutely correct. Because who represented the presence of God to the people of that day? Deborah did. And what Barack was saying is not that I'm too afraid to go without a woman. He's saying I'm too afraid to go without God. And in doing this, he's saying, look, I have the same fear you have today. When people say, here's a ministry opportunity for you. We have a mission trip, and we're going here, and hey, can you be one of the speakers? Oh, no! I'll help with the construction. I'll help with the medical clinics. I'll help with all this, but don't put me in front of people to tell them about God and to in some way put into my charge the actual call for people to come up and give their life to Christ. I can't do that. Why are we afraid to do that? Because we're going into battle alone. And that's the emotion that Barack had. I can't go into battle alone because my results will be disastrous. He says, I have to have the presence of God go with me. And if you, who has proven that the the very presence of God is in you. If you're with me, that, that gives me more hope and more faith than anything because I know my life has been more downs than up spiritually. And I would love to be as close to God as you are, Deborah, but you're telling me to go now. And so don't get lost in the story that he's afraid because she is Xena, warrior princess, or Wonder Woman. Okay, she was very strong, 
And yes, she was very influential, but she herself was not a warrior of the flesh. But Barak recognized in her that she was truly the greatest warrior in the spirit. And because of that, he said, you have to come with me. It, it echoes so much, even the names that are listed here. You know, the son-in-law of Moses. It's trying to connect you back to Moses and the battles that took place where Moses was not out there with a sword, but he was up on the hillside with his hands raised. And the very act of having someone who truly was connected to God as part of your battle could change the outcome of the war. And because of that, Barak recognized that and said, I need another Moses with me. And so it continues by him bringing her there. Now she says, okay, I'll come, but you're not going to get the credit for this. The Lord will have the credit for it. And even worse than that, a woman's going to get the credit for it. For finishing this battle, a woman's going to get the credit. And most people read this and say, oh, she's saying, oh, if I have to go, I'm going to get all the credit. You're not going to get the credit. You sure? That's not what it's saying. And we know because we've read all the way through the story, she's not talking about herself. Who's she talking about? Jael. She's saying, God not only can work through me, she can work through a woman who's not even part of us. A person that has these really tricky alliances. Her husband and his clan, they're not living where they're supposed to. They normally are at the south part of the Sea of Galilee. And scripture tells us that they've moved to the north part of Galilee and they're out on their own and they've made alliances with both the Israelites and Javan. They have ties and, hey, white flag, hey, we're Switzerland in the middle of your battle. <laughs> that's what they've claimed. And that's who she's part of. Right here, Jennifer. I just wanted to say something about Jald, the yes. Olympian tent pegger, because um, most men, if somebody tried to come up and hit them with something sharp in their temple, would have woken up and overpowered them, right? Uh, so yeah. I think the hand of God had to have been in that as well with her being able to do that. Yes. And at the very end of the book of Judges, it says that um, everybody did what was right in their own eyes in that period of time. And so I think God worked with whoever was willing to be worked with to accomplish his purposes. Which gives us hope today, doesn't it? It says something about God. Absolutely. Uh, We look at Jael and um, the Olympic tent pegger. Thank you. I I never... (laughs) i got to read more commentaries, I guess. Um, yeah, seriously. Had that been me, I, I, I picture myself trying to position the tent peg over the, the guy who's sleeping there and, and putting the hammer over it, my hand shaking so hard. It's, it sounds like I'm sending a telegram. Ding, 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 ding. Well, I'm just trying to get it positioned, and then he's going to wake up. And the whole thought in my mind is he's waking up, he's waking up, he's waking What if I miss and hit my thumb? All these thoughts going through my mind. One thing you need to understand, once again, the role of women, it's, it's, we, we get a totally different perspective today. We've westernized everything. We view women as weak today, which I think is absolutely, absolutely incorrect. The individual in charge of setting up and tearing down the tent was the woman. She knew how to drive a tent peg because the men didn't set up the tent. 
The men didn't take down the... She had driven those stakes all around the tent. She can drive one more in the tent. She didn't have a small hammer. And <laughs> this has no reflection on her, of course, but her name means mountain goat, okay? Jael means mountain goat. This, this is not some frail little princess in there with a little hammer and a little spike. This is a mountain goat who says... I'm willing to do something. Because you see, in their culture, the custom required that you invite in the stranger and you give them hospitality and you give them protection, especially if you have some sort of alliance with them, some agreement that I won't attack you, you won't attack me. She went against her husband without asking her husband. She took the matters in her own hand and said, enough is enough. Today, we have our own battles. We've in recent history, had others like Osama bin Laden that they searched for and searched for and searched for. And we watch these TV shows about how they got him and what they did, and we cheer. Yeah, why? Because he was the oppressor. Jael looks here and says, here's the opportunity. And she took it. Now, several things here that we have to look at. First of all, in verse 14 and 15, which, by the way, is pivotal. This is the key of the entire story, is verse 15. 14 and 15 say, Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. It's interesting to look here. Deborah tries encouraging Barak with bold words and concludes that the Lord is marching ahead of you. The text says that it was when Barak attacked that the Lord began to act. What does it say about the character of God that he would wait until the people acted before he launched his action. Does God typically make us show something before he does? Who's next? Right here. Yes, Sharon. A sidebar. It's been on my mind since we started studying this. Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Mm -hmm. And then we have all this killing. Mm -hmm. How do you put it together? Thank you for asking that at 10, uh, 11.30. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. That is too rich a subject, and we are, we are going to have to answer that. And I'm not putting you off, but we are going to answer that. Uh, because we will have 12 chances to answer that. Uh, this is our third chance to see. You have to look at the consistency of Scripture. You cannot just take one story. You cannot just take one section of Scripture and define God's opinion on a certain topic. And so thank you for asking that. I will tell you the answer in the coming weeks, and so don't miss it. <laughs> yes. I used to tell children's stories all the time, and I'd love to get to the end and I'd say, and boys and girls, do you know what happened? I'll tell you next week. And the kids were disappointed, but the parents were furious because they were going to go to the mountains the next week. They were going to go to the beach. They were going to go to family. And now the kid's like, no, I have to find out what happens to little Johnny. <laughs> I want to share with you the most 
crucial part of this story that we absolutely miss is that Deborah says, go. I'll go with you. God's with you. But I need you to go. Mount Tabor, depending on who you see, the majority say about 1,300 feet in elevation, is a conical little feature in the area. It's the mountainous safe region. If you want to be safe, get on Mount Tabor. If you want to get yourself in absolute danger's way, go down Tabor into the flat valley. Because it's in that Kishon River Valley. It's flat and it's perfect for chariots. Sisera had 900 iron chariots. You know why they say iron chariots? Because up to that time, not until after the, after the reign of Saul, do the Israelites know how to actually work with iron. They don't have the technology. They're, the technology is completely against them. It's so far advanced beyond what they can even produce. And here's this ragtag group of rebels running down a mountain toward technology they do not possess into the very spot that that technology works the best. God says, go put yourself absolutely in harm's way and see what I can do. And it's not until they say, okay, God said, go, let's go, and they're running down to the advantage of the enemy. The enemy couldn't get to them on Tabor, but he says, go down there where they are the most cocky. And in that moment, commentators say, based upon chapter 5, the song of Deborah that comes next, that what God utilized was the unexpected. In that river valley, it's mostly clay in that area, and it was already past the rain season, the latter rain. And what God did south of that area is he brought lightning and he brought thunder, sounds a little bit like Barak, brought lightning from the south while Barak, the other lightning, came from the east. And he brought such a torrential rain that this Kishon River ran from the south all the way up along this valley until it hit the Mediterranean. And what he did was he caused so much rain there, which, by the way, is really interesting because he does it a little bit later with Elijah, near the same place, a lot of rain. So much rain that the advantage of the enemy, which was iron chariots, rendered them all in iron traps because the wheels of the chariots sunk down into the axles and the chariots couldn't move. They were no longer mobile. And the things that were supposed to help them, 900 chariots, became 900 coffins because if you stay where you are, you're a sitting duck. And these men run down in the mud and start chasing them out and winning the battle. God says, if you'll act, I'll act. But I need you and me for us to ultimately win the battle. And so if you'll trust me to do my part, I'll trust you to do your part, and together we can do something that truly can give you peace, allow you the environment to grow in your relationship with me, free from the harassment that you've been going through for 20 years. So what does that mean for us? How courageous are you to act before you see God act? This story required 10,000 men to say, I can't base my future spiritual victory on what I see. God's calling me to go into harm's way, but he tells me he'll be there and he will bring victory. Secondly, 
if you try to brace yourself by saying, well, I need this, and I need that, and I need that, God's going to say, great, you'll still be part of the story, but your story will be rewritten. Because I, I wrote you as the hero of the story. But as long as you keep asking for all these extra insurance items, you realize the story's not going to be the way I wrote it for you. Your name will be remembered, but you're not the main hero. And I'll give it to someone else. And in the time that this was written, probably the biggest put-down of a male's ego is to say a woman could do better than a man when it comes to uh, issues of battle. And so when Barak comes running up to the tent and she says, let me show you who you're looking for, he expects to see Sisera huddling and shaking inside the tent. And what he sees is that Deborah truly was a prophet. She told him, and the confidence he had in God after that was based upon what he saw on the ground, that truly victory came in the hands of a woman, but it wasn't who he thought. God is full of surprises. He just needs us to act. It's my prayer that God brings many surprises into your life starting this week. And one of the major surprises I hope he brings is just so much courage into your life. You've got so many things that God has called you to do. I just pray that he will continue building up your courage so that you can see firsthand exactly the story that God has written in you, for you, and ultimately will write through you. And so I pray for courage for you this week. Now, next episode, I cannot wait for you to hear that one. We get to meet a brand new judge, a new character, one that you've heard a lot about. But we are going to take a look at some things that I guarantee you've never heard of before. We are going to take a look at Gideon. We're going to take a look at the very beginning, the very first introduction when we get to meet him. And I can't wait for you to see exactly how God raised up this judge to say something very specific about his character. And I want you to know that in your heart as well. So come back and join us for our next episode. God bless you as you continue on your journey of researching and developing the character of God. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.